Um, over 40-some years of, of being in this field, I, I noticed certain things that I, I can't explain, and they, they kind of get my mind to working. And For example, I, I would notice certain staff people who could walk into a, you know, walk into a day room with patients acting out, and they walk into that room and all the patients calm down. And then I got another staff member ascending to the same situation, and they don't say a word and all heck breaks loose. So I'm wondering, what is this all about? You know, what, what's happening here? I, I noticed too that, that some clinicians just seem to have better outcomes than others. And a lot of times they're doing the same types of technique. Uh, they just, uh, you know, seem to do better statistically. I also am interested why, for example, people can, can walk up uh, to you with a problem that they couldn't solve, and when they get in your presence, they solve the problem and say thank you and walk away. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Do you know why that happens? Well, I'm going to try to explain that and a couple other things to you as best I can. Uh, uh, these are just things that fascinate me. Uh, uh, let me just start with the punchline, if I can, and uh, tell you what I hope to do in a, a short 50 minutes. Uh, if you look at, at the ego from a spiritual perspective, and you look at, at the ego, and it tends to be developed about between the ages of 2 and 10. And... What happens during that time is we end up with a lot of unconscious programs uh, that guide our life. Uh, actually, they say that by age 14, uh, that 80 to 90 percent of what you do is pretty much predetermined uh, by these old types of uh, unconscious programs. Uh, there's programs, for example, like <clears throat> power and control. I don't know if you've ever gone to dinner with anyone who has power and control issues, but it uh, it always seems to go like this. They, they they ask you, where do you want to go to dinner? Well, they've known where we're going to dinner all day long. And so here I am. I'm trying to, you know, trying to guess what the right restaurant is, and I'll start out with seafood. And No, nah, I don't feel like that tonight. Greek, well, I had it last week. Italian, you hope you get to the right one. And then finally you get to the right one. What about uh, barbecue tonight? And she looks at me and says, that's a wonderful idea you had. Like I had anything to do with it at all, you know. And these are That's just kind of an innocuous example. But uh, what I, I like to do is to look at uh, these old programs. Actually, if you bring them into conscious awareness, you take the power away from them. And so when we start to look at this, uh, I've talked about the development of ego and its unconscious programs. And we say that the ego causes a lot of suffering and misery. And I think the reason for that is that it lives in the past and future, and it's very fear-based. And if you think about it, all of our misery is in the past and future. Your past is where guilt and shame are. Your future is where your fear and anxiety is. And it's only in the moment. When you can get over here in the right hemisphere, if you're mindful, for example, uh, that we can find some peace and solitude because in the moment it's really impossible to have conflict. 
You know, and so when we talk about spiritual things, as, as we will, um, what you actually see is some movement from left hemisphere towards right hemisphere, and at least in 96% of the people who are left hemisphere dominant, in other words, they have Wernick and Broca's area speech and speech comprehension. And so if you, you think about that and, and look at it, 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 the ego being in the past and future is a source of our conflict. So what we do is we get into a spiritual program, and AA, in my mind, I've been in AA for well over 40 years, and, you know, it just seems to me that it is as strong a spiritual program as anything else I've looked at, which is contemplated Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and a little bit with the Tao. But I tell you what, it's, a, it's an amazing program. If you look at the first three steps, what you're doing is dealing with control issues. And that's a major power and control is a major deal for the ego. You know, it wants to be in control. It wants to have power. It's always looking out for me. You know, what's best for me? So if we look at this spiritual programs, any good spiritual program, if you work it with humility, honesty, will deflate the ego. And when the ego is deflated, that which you truly are, I, I call it the soul or self. You can call it Christ consciousness. If you're a Hindu, you can call it Atman. But it's that, that part inside of us that, uh, that divinity is, if you will. There's divinity within us. And so if you look at that, what happens is you don't have to acquire anything spiritually. I have a lot of friends that go to India and all over the place, and I hope they have wonderful vacations, but you can do the same thing in your living room. I mean, it's, 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 as much as anything else, uh, what we're doing is as we deflate the ego, that which we truly are is realized. You know, that true self or what you like to call it, Christ consciousness, God consciousness, uh, starts to come to the front. So I think the important piece there is that you've already gotten it. You already have it. It's all there. All you have to do is realize it. And, of course, that takes a bit of dedication and work. Uh, there's nothing easy about it necessarily. Now, if you look at, uh, at uh, true self or soul, uh, it, when it flowers, when it really starts to come into its own, what it does, it changes your worldview. You know, over the years, I've come to realize that it's my worldview that causes me misery and suffering more than anything else, the way you look at the world. And what we'll talk about, uh, at least for a few minutes, is the worldview of the ego is, is more narcissistic, is more grandiose, if you will, where, where the worldview, I think, uh, of our soul, of ourself, as we start to, uh, to, to gain more time in recovery or with more time in a spiritual program, it is this piece that really comes to the front. And I think what happens is the worldview is more a worldview of gratitude. When you look at the world from gratitude, the world is a much different place. You see, to me, it, it, spirituality is sort of like climbing a mountain. You know, the higher you get, the more the world looks different, right? The world hadn't changed a bit. It's just the way you see it has changed. It will determine whether you have problems or spiritual opportunities. You know, so as we start to, <clears throat> to look at this and, and think a little bit more about it, uh, what we start to see then is that shift towards right lateralization. There's been a little bit of uh, research on that. 
And, but anecdotally, I, I feel pretty confident that that's what happens because as a person grows in their spirituality, they spend more time alone. They spend more time in the quiet uh, silence, uh, you know, which silence actually is the first language of God, they say. So as we look at, at something like this and uh, sort of uh, uh, think about all of this, that worldview is, is really important. And, you know, at a certain point, there is, there is what is called a flow. Uh, spiritual things happen in a flow state. If you think of the Bible, for example, in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, when something really cool happened, there was, uh, there was uh, clouds descending, you know, there was uh, fire, there was, there was flow state. There was something that was happening at those moments that seemed to be a part of uh, the spiritual evolution. So there is a flow out there. There is an energy that I think that we can at least uh, kind of uh, access at times. That, uh, and this flow, I think, is what some people call consciousness. So consciousness is a little different than the World Wide Web, as far as I can tell. Now, I can't prove anything I'm telling you. I, this is just what I've grown to understand over 40 years of, of practicing spiritual things. And, you know, it, it seems to me that, that what starts to happen here is as you gain energy, you know, you affect people around you. You walk into a room, people are cutting up, and they all of a sudden get quiet. Your energy impacts people around you. And this is going to be one of the reasons that uh, we can talk about why when someone gets in your presence, they seem to be able to solve a problem that they couldn't solve before they got in your presence. So this is uh, <clears throat> kind of what I want to uh, look at. And I think that when you start to look at these things, we can call it, you know, many different things. For example, uh, you might want to look at the process of becoming a wounded healer. I don't know any healers that aren't wounded healers. Uh, you know, the best ones have dealt with their own wounds, and that's the secret behind all of this, I think. Uh, and I think you could call it placebo effect if you want. Um, you know, you could call it chi or ki or kundalini energy or whatever the heck you want to call it. So with that in mind, let's kind of <clears throat> look at a few things. This is a, a you know, a, a bowl, but you might notice something different about it. Uh, obviously, it's been broken, and look how it's repaired with gold. I, I think it's a lovely metaphor for recovery, and what this is is a Japanese, uh, uh, you know, artistic uh, uh, piece, and uh, it's called Kinsakuroi, I think, but I can't speak Japanese, so uh, I, I'm not sure about the pronunciation. But it's all about repairing things that have been broken. And I think a lot about this, you know, how many of us as alcoholics and addicts or people who are in clinicians have heard, heard us say things like, thank God I'm, I was an alcoholic and an addict, because if I hadn't gone to that, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so as we think of this whole process and sort of look at it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because in the West, if we broke a bowl, we throw it away. But in this particular type of technique, they think that something has been broken and been repaired is even more valuable now than it was before. And that, to me, is what recovery is about. 
It's becoming more valuable, you know, more understanding of self and others, the ability to contribute to community, family, um, employment. So as we look at this, it, it, in my mind, it's just a simple little metaphor, but I, I like it a lot. Uh, you think that life, we say there's a lot of good things and a lot of bad things, right? Well, I find that kind of interesting because spiritually, when you look at the spiritual realm, uh, you can't have duality. You can't have two things. It can't be good and bad. It's called the polarity of the opposites. It's something you work on in, in spiritually. And so what happens in this is that <clears throat> I think when we look at it, how do you know if something's good or something's bad? How do you really know? Relatively in the moment, I can say, boy, this feels bad. But maybe a couple years from now, I'll say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So how do you know? You know, I I talk to patients about this sometimes, and I, I tell them the story of an old Chinaman. And a Chinaman has a, a strapping son and a horse, and by village standards, he's pretty well off. Well, one day the old horse runs off, and townspeople come up to the Chinaman and say, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You've lost your horse. You're not going to be able to plow the fields. You're not going to have any food this winter. This is a horrible thing. Worst thing that could ever happen to you. Old farmer says, maybe yes, maybe no. Well, a couple weeks later, the horse comes back and has ten wild stallions with it. They corral them up. And, you know, the townspeople are back. This is the best thing that could ever happen to you. You're the richest man in the whole village now. And your old farmer says, maybe yes, maybe no. Well, a couple weeks later, his son's trying to break one of the stallions, gets tossed, breaks a leg. Townspeople are back. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Your son's incapacitated. He's not going to be able to work the farm. And the old farmer says, maybe yes, maybe no. A couple weeks later, your army comes through town. They're conscripting all the young men, but they can't take his son. Well, you know where this is going. What I'm, what I'm trying to say to you, when I talk with patients, I make the son an opiate addict, get him into treatment, and we kind of mess with it a little bit. But, you know, it, the thing about it is how do you know? How do you know? You know? And I think everything's good. Everything's an opportunity. And it, to me, um, it's just a worldview. If, uh, if you don't see things as problems, you see them as opportunities. It certainly makes them a lot easier to bear and to deal with. So I think that, that when we look at this, as we, we look at, at a person who's growing spiritually, um, what this energy is, I, I guess the best word for it is love, or you can call it biophotons, for example. The uh, distance between Brian and I right now, the physicists say there's enough energy right here to boil every ocean in the world. Just think if we were in love. <laughs> it would tear the place up. So if you look at, if you look at this, and just think about it a little bit, uh, we're looking in all the wrong places for the spirit. You know, the Tao has a beautiful little thing that it says. It says, a wheel has a, a, a spokes and it has a nice rim, but what gives it utility? The hole in the middle. A house can be beautiful with doors and windows and roofs and floors, but what makes it livable? You know, the space inside the house. A cup can be beautiful and ceramic, but what gives it usefulness? 
the space on the inside. What it's telling us is we're kind of looking in all the wrong places, you know. And I think that uh, uh, as we start to, to, to look at this from the perspective of spiritual growth and start to watch what happens with the ego, I'm just going to briefly go through this with you. This is what we think. Now, I can't prove it, but developmental psychology and a few other things and some neurobiology and a little spirituality, but between zero and two years of age, at least up to 18 months, what you see is a young child that is still in a nonlinear state. You know, they're still in the garden, so to speak. At about 18 to 24 months, long axons, white fibers, start to connect the areas of the brain. And at about, oh, maybe around 2, 18 months, what happens is you develop a separate self. And now it's me and mommy. Now we've got to worry about alienation and death and all that stuff. We've just fallen from the garden into the material world. Now, <clears throat> what we think between 2 and 10 is the ego is really a conditioned self. It's just what you were told you are, not who you are, but what you've been told you are by your parents, your culture, your nation, your religion. Uh, some of that involves prejudices and who I should hang with and who I shouldn't, who I should like, who I should not like. All of these things become a part of who we are, but it's not who we are. You know, it's what we have become. I just think of it as a conditioned self. Between the age of 2 and 10, a child's brain is a wonderful receiver. They can take in anything. I'm sure you've probably been in a family session before where, you know, you, you were dealing with mom and dad, and all of a sudden a little 4-year-old blurts up and says something like, Dad says he's a real asshole, you know. And uh, a 4-year-old, you know, it's 6-year-old, they just, their mind's like traps. And so when we look at this, what we believe is that between 2 and 10 is where these unconscious programs come in. I don't have enough time to talk about them to, too much today. Um, if, you, if you email me, I'll be happy to send you information on that. Or if you want these slides, you're, you're certainly welcome to them. Uh, and so if you, if you think uh, uh, you know, about this just a little bit, what happens around 10 or 12? I remember my son coming home, he was 11, and he, he started, he says, Dad, it's not fair. For about six months to a year, nothing was fair. But that's kind of a beautiful thing for a developmental psychologist because what it means is his dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is growing. We're starting to see some executive functioning. Um, and uh, so now, all of a sudden, instead of being more egocentric, He's looking out in the world. And when you look at your patients or look at yourself, this is where we start to act out, 12, 13, 14, 11, because what you get is a sort of a self-reflective consciousness. Instead of, you know, all about me, now I can look out in the world. And I can see that my neighbor, uh, who has a son and is my best friend, dad isn't coming home drunk and beating him with a belt. So when these things happen, we start to act out, and the acting out is pretty simple. You can run away, you can use drugs, you can hurt yourself, you can bully other people to make you feel good. It's not very sophisticated, but those are the types of things we see. Now, if you look at, at, at the ego, it, uh, I guess in terms of development, uh, we talked about the unconscious programs. I gave you uh, a little example you know, of, uh, you know, but power and control. There's others, security, uh, you know, for example, safety and security. 
uh, affection and self-esteem. And when people grow up in families where there's chaos, uh, where there's not consistency and fairness, uh, we tend to develop these programs pretty strongly, and they really guide our life to a great degree. I mean, my father was... Uh, Number one, his medical school class at University of Virginia. He was a Jefferson Fellow and a Jefferson Scholar. And uh, it's, you don't get much better than that. Um, and, you know, and when he died, I was 17. And people in the city that I lived in bought his shingle. He was Cardwell C. Knuckles Senior MD. I'm 17 years old, first year in college. They say that when you finish medical school, we can, we'll build you an office and you can put this shingle on it. I never felt I could be as good as my father. I didn't know him. He was an alcoholic, workaholic, but everybody seemed to love him. I put him up on a pedestal, so I lived most of my early life with self-critical perfectionism, and you can never be perfect. So these are the things that, that tend to cause us a lot of suffering and misery in life, and I think that uh, as we look at it, uh, the ego is really really resistant to getting rid of these programs. It has a lot to do with its power on a very unconscious level. And if you look at, at the ego, it loves to be the victim. It just loves to be the victim. You know, it, uh, it, it, it seems to revel in it. And, you know, it's an a interesting thing. The other thing that you hear is, is it should have been different. It could have been different. It ought to have been this way. If that person hadn't ratted me out, I wouldn't have ever gone to prison. So when you look at that, as far as I know, you can't change the past. So I'm not going to mess with should, could, and ought to. It's sort of a waste of time. But when you, when you look at this, uh, uh, this is just the ego talking. Now, if you look at, at an example of this, I just, I, I just give you a, a talking story. Um, what if I met a lady at this conference? And we started talking, and I asked her if she'd like to go out to dinner tonight. And she said yes, and being an old guy, I felt pretty fortunate. So we go out to dinner, and I start telling her all about myself. Then I tell her more about myself. Then I tell her some more stuff about me because she's not important. At the end of the evening, I thought we had a great time, you know. <laughs> and so the next day, tomorrow, I see her around and I ask her if she would like to maybe go out to dinner, a movie, something like that. And she looks at me and says, I hope I never even pass you on the sidewalk again. <laughs> well, if she's codependent, I have a pretty good shot, don't I? But uh, this one happened to be a little too healthy. And so what happens in rejection is you've got to remember the ego internalizes all good and externalizes all bad. Heinz Cahoot said that back in the 30s, I think. And so what that means is never my fault. There's always somebody else to blame. So you just keep making the same mistakes like any narcissist would do. And, uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it tends to be the story of your life. Now, because I'm uh, externalizing all bad, who am I going to blame for this little mishap with this nice lady? Am I going to blame me? You're right. I'm going to blame her. <clears throat> At least I won't waste any money on her. What a loser she is. So today I come in here and... You know, I see myself as a victim. I was rejected. So I come to group today, and I tell you my sad story. And, you know, I, I you know, expecting a little sympathy from you, but, but one of you says to me, well, say, what did you get out of this? 
often in ego psychology and other things, you have a secondary gain. And what the secondary gain is in this is a resentment. It's a secondary gain. Because when you have a resentment, what can you do? Anything you want because somebody else made you do it. It's called Relapse 101. Uh, and it's, it's Human Misery 101, too. <clears throat> but this is kind of the way it works, you know. Uh, this lady, you know, put me down, so tomorrow night I'm going to go out and uh, cop some heroin, shoot some dope, and blow 43 years of recovery, all to get even with someone I'll never see again, you know, which is even more bizarre. So <clears throat> as we look at it, the, the ego kind of works like this. Now, I mentioned this to you earlier, so we won't spend time here, but if you look at, uh, at, at what we were talking about, we said earlier that, that spiritual disciplines reduce the power of the ego. And this automatically allows the self or your soul to become present, to shine through, if you will. Uh, as I said, you can't acquire it. You already have it. So as we look at, at, at this, we talked earlier about a change in worldview. And so as this starts to happen, we start to see the world a little bit differently. Now, if you think about worldview, <clears throat> your worldview can impact your life, I mean, uh, the way you see things. You can look at life as problematic and, uh, you know, uh, maybe full of fear and anxiety, or you can look at life as a bunch of opportunities to grow. I mean, it just depends on where you're at and how you want to look at things. Now, what do you see? Well, it's an old rose that's kind of bent over, isn't it? A lot of people would say that that rose is ready for the garbage can, that it's, not, it's pretty worthless now. Some of you would look at that rose and you'd say, oh, no, that's a perfect rose. That rose is perfectly where it needs to be on its own journey to learn the lessons it's here to learn, I guess, just like we are. And I think all of us are perfect, perfectly where we need to be to learn the lessons we're here to learn. And so I look at this, and it, it makes me think the way I look at people I work with, the way I look at other people, has a lot to do with the outcome of that situation, doesn't it? You know, if I look at, I have a patient who comes in who's been in and out of the criminal justice system since he was an adolescent. You know, everything he's done is apparently messed up. Now, I could look at that patient, and I could see this old rose here, and I could say, oh, this, this person's not going to get better. Why do I want to spend all my energy on them when I can spend it on people who really want to get better? See, that's a cop-out. You know, I don't buy it at all. But it's, it's an excuse we hear every now and then. You see, by looking at that person and seeing, seeing the love and beauty inside of them that they can't see inside of themselves, and accepting them with unconditional regard, we actually know, for example, that unconditional regard and love changes genetic expression in the brain. And so when we start to look at this, this worldview can have a pretty dramatic impact on, on the way we view other people. And that view is going to really underline the transaction we have. You know, if I see you as, as, as a person who can potentially grow and learn, and if I can develop a relationship with you, maybe something good will happen. Maybe, maybe that person will say to me, 
you know, you're the first person I think I can trust. You know, that's that's pretty big. So as we look at these sorts of things and uh, start to think about worldview, uh, I think it's pretty important. It's really just your philosophy. Everything that's made you who you are up to this point has determined your worldview. A lot of it started out in childhood, and now we have a worldview. You could you could say that I think that the worldview of the ego, uh, one worldview anyway, would be grandiosity. You know, kind of a grandiose sense of self, very narcissistic. And we could look at this, uh, I call it the ego operating system. Uh, it, it's just a... Uh, I, it's just something that, that I kind of use to, to show people that it's like this thing sitting in your left hemisphere that's looking out in the world, um, and it's looking out the world and operating from a sense of grandiosity. And the way it's looking at the world is what's in it for me, you know? How do I get the most for myself? Well, as we grow spiritually and we start to get more soulful, if you will, uh, what we see is gratitude. You see, gratitude and uh, it allows you to see the love and beauty inside of people even when they can't see it in themselves. And it's healing. It's healing. And so as we think of this, uh, you know, I see in the right hemisphere another operating system. I really think this is neurobiological. I don't have proof of that. But I can tell you that as you grow spiritually, you'll spend a lot more time in your right hemisphere, a lot more time in the moment you know, which is conflict-free, which is very nice. Now, we know that a good spiritual program through humility and honesty can start to uh, do an ember on the ego. And so when we look at this, you know, I think that we talk about things like defects of character. And, you see, there's certain things that pharmacology and psychology don't work very well with. One is narcissism. We could ever figure out how to work with narcissism. That'd be a neat thing. Um, you just kind of hook the narcissism and try to get them to places where maybe they'll learn something. But when you look at, at this, uh, these character defects are part and parcel of the ego. They're part of that narcissistic self. Um, every defect of character is, is egoic. For example, the ego is always comparing and contrasting. So I'm looking at it, you, and I'm saying, do I think I'm more intelligent than you or not or better looking than you or not? And you see, if I, I answer, uh, yes, I think I'm smarter than you, then I feel pretty good, but I have no empathy for you. But if I think you're smarter than me, it doesn't make me happy at all. You know, it makes me very upset. And so when we look at this, what happens is that when you're on a spiritual journey, and you start moving and you're going forgiveness and surrender and you're working the steps. What happens as you gain in spirituality, character defects don't work for you anymore. They just go away. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to do it, but I know that that works because I've seen it in an awful lot of people. And I think it is just working that spiritual program because if you think of step six, it says become entirely ready, Right? And if you think about that, that's all we can do. Become entirely ready, reduce defenses, resistance, and everything else is all about your higher power. Asking him to remove these defects. Humbly ask him to remove these defects of character. It's not saying go to your psychiatrist, your sponsor, or your therapist. It's saying God has to do this. Your higher power has to do this. So as we look at... Uh, 
at, at some of this. We also have a worldview that, uh, you know, that, that involves pride and shame and guilt. And uh, the thing about these is that a lot of people love to roll around in guilt. They love to roll in it. And one of the things that happens in this is that, that guilt, for example, and shame activate the nucleus accumbens in your reward center and you kick out dopamine. You actually get rewarded for pity, you know, for, uh, and it's, uh, you're getting something out of it. And so people tend to, to revel in it for a while. Now, if you look at this, if you looked at Wellbutrin, we know it enhances dopamine, norepinephrine, and, uh, but gratitude does the same thing. When one is grateful, dopamine levels go up. When you look at Prozac, Prozac, we know, works through serotonin principally. Gratitude causes serotonin to increase. So gratitude does a lot of wonderful things for us. It, uh, it can certainly possibly help with our neurotransmitter situation. And when you look at, at this, what I want to do now is I want to parlay this into something a little different here. But what we've talked about is the ego and the changes in worldview and kind of what happens. And we've done that very briefly. But what I want to do now is uh, I know that you've worked hard at, you know, to become who you are. And I know that uh, probably most of you have a pretty strong spiritual program. And when you think of this, and we start to look back, I mean, today, you know, we could look back at medicine and say it used to be an art that didn't have much science. And now I would say medicine is a science that's lost its art. I love to do a, a, a presentation called The Art and Science of Healing. We've got a lot of research on it. You know, we actually know uh, a, a bit more than we used to about how these things work. And so what I'd like to do is to kind of go through this with you as best we can and uh, see where we go with it. When you think about it, mostly the continuing education that we get is almost like a, like graduate work or something. You come in to learn about the brain and recovery and all this stuff. There's, there's really nothing for clinicians, really, unless you want to go into, uh, you know, uh, uh, counseling, uh, that really is geared to help us grow as human beings. There was never any courses in school. There was never anything in continuing education that seems to deal with this. And so my concern is, is that, uh, uh, that you know, that we add uh, some things that allow us the opportunity to grow as individuals as we grow as professionals. Because it's your personal spiritual self, I see that both as the same, uh, that's going to determine to a great degree your ability to establish a therapeutic relationship. And there's some pretty good uh, uh, research out on that. For example, uh, here decades of empir empirical research find that other than pre-existing client characteristics, individual therapies differences in the therapeutic relationship are the most robust indicators of outcome. So if you're the most robust indicator of outcome, why the heck don't we deal with you? Why don't we do things that allow us to grow, you know, make it part of, you know, the curriculum, so to speak. Um, now, you know, if you look at this, uh, I, I just think that, that 
we can think about it in a couple of different ways. Now, I'm going to go back to where I started and ask you to relive a time when you totally resonated with another person, your dog, your child. Um, in a resonance, what happens is your right hemisphere to right hemisphere, and the work of Alan Shore and the work of others has shown that right hemisphere to right hemisphere resonance, remember the right hemisphere has no words, has no time, it's non-temporal, uh, is actually heals some of the unconscious uh, difficulties we have. It's been really interesting research, and it... It was really something that when I started to look at it about 10 years ago, uh, really uh, made me feel really comfortable because I think that, that during times with patients, we have those moments sometimes where we resonate with them. And you might have noticed it as one of those sessions that goes by just like that, you know, because you're not in time. But those tend to be the, the most healing sessions, and they're more right hemisphere to right hemisphere. You know, we got to do the left hemisphere stuff, but the right hemisphere stuff can be very healing on an unconscious level. Now, what we're doing now is just talking about resonating with, with someone. So what I want to show you is, is Mabel and Josh, okay? And what I'm going to do is, uh, this is Josh, and he has a dog named Mabel. And what we're going to do is we're going to have Josh in a different room, Mabel in another room, and then Josh is going to walk into that room with Mabel, is going to not say a word to her, is not going to touch her, but is just going to send love to her. And we want to see what happens. We're measuring heart rate here, so I'll kind of step through it with you if you can. Uh, This is Mabel, the dog. This is Josh, the boy, okay? So right now they're in different rooms. And you can see these rhythms aren't anywhere close. Now, as we get into this sort of second section here, right here, Josh walks into the room, doesn't touch the dog, doesn't say anything, just sends it love. And look what happens. Almost perfect. Almost perfect. Just like that. And then we see Josh leaving the room here, and we sort of see these erratic you know, rhythms and stuff. But this to me is, is, is really interesting because we really synchronize with people. We can really resonate with people. And I think a lot of healing takes place there. Now, you know, we, we believe now, at least heart math does, if you're familiar with heart math, uh, that, that the heart has much more powerful in terms of energy than the brain. They even discovered that your heart has a brain. It has sensory neurons. It also has short and long-term memory, they found. This all started in Montreal when they discovered sensory neurons in a dog's heart in 1996. But when you get, when someone gets close to you and they have a problem they can't solve, some very interesting things happen. So I ask you again, can you remember an experience when someone came to you with a problem they couldn't solve and in your presence they solved it. Well, what we think's going on there is if you have a higher level of energy in physics, we talk about attractor fields and things like that, but you have a high level of energy, person coming to you with a low level of energy, when they get into your wavelength, so to speak, what, what, it's, what the, the rule is is that the person with the most organized, coherent energy will dominate. You know, the highest, most coherent, organized energy. So what happens is that patient or that person actually 
moves up and can use your information, can use your consciousness, if you will, and solve the problem. But when they walk away, it's not not there anymore. I had that experience in my first AA meeting, I think. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, we call it entrainment. You become entrained. And again, this allows us to see the love and beauty inside of people who cannot see it in themselves. And I think that it's, uh, this, this aspect of it is very important in terms of the relationship. Now, if you look at, at, at this, it, I guess early in my career I kind of fought this, but I've come to truly believe that we can't take a person any further than we've gone ourselves. And, of course, you know, when we think about this, we can think about it in terms of our personal unconscious programs. We can think about, you know, uh, different aspects of ourselves that we need to work on, things that uh, a good 12-step program will help you with mightily. Now, if we look at this, uh, I would say that a lot of times the experience I've had with, with patients is they want to know if I'm really going to listen to them. Am I going to really be there for you? You know, you go be like the other people, uh, you know, write me a prescription or, you know, uh, ask me a couple of questions, and that's what's over with. Uh, I'm seeing more now in some of the medical nursing literature about this. It's just starting to uh, come out uh, in terms of, of taking care of ourselves, you know, and uh, becoming you know, our own best friends. And so I think if you, if you, if you look at this, the first thing you gotta do is listen to yourself, right? If you really listen to yourself, you'll start to hear people even when they're not talking. I don't know how to explain it, but it seems to work that way. Um, Carl Jung said, uh, uh, this, I think he's probably right. Uh, knowing your own darkness is the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people. Now, when we start to, to look at this, uh, we're talking about some type of transformative growth here. And I think that when we look at trying to become whole, and the word whole actually uh, came from Matthew 5:48, where it says, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's a deal breaker, isn't it, right there? Uh, who can be perfect? But actually in Aramaic, the word means whole. Be whole. Be a whole human being. Reach your potential as a human being uh, in this life. And that's basically spiritual. And so if you look at this, uh, I think that uh, it, it, it taking time for self. Most people say I don't have time to take care of myself. But if you take care of yourself, everything else seems to flow better. It just seems to fall into place a lot better. I want to talk to you about one more thing here. In 1955, I think it was at the American Medical Association, Henry Beecher talked about placebos. And he pointed out to his colleagues that while they may think a placebo was fake medicine, they couldn't argue about the results, that at least a third of the people got better with a placebo and that it could reduce anxiety, it could help with post-operative pain. Now, if you think of this word placebo and think about what it means, uh, you know, there's all sorts of definitions uh, of the word, but I tend to like uh, uh, this particular piece. 
this hypothesis that he had, which I, I kind of I like, he said, the placebo effect is a biological response to the act of caring. <clears throat> and I think that's about as good a definition as there is. When we connect with other people, when air spiritual energy, uh, you know, uh, comes into bear in a session, um, I think that what happens is people get better. They just get better. And we know that uh, in these situations uh, that really what the placebo is is a da- dance of attachment between the clinician and the patient. And so when we look at this, if we could accept it as a byproduct of caring uh, and being able to see the patient uh, as as a whole, as a, you know, uh, a person capable of recovery, capable of major change in their life. And so when we look at it in this way, uh, we can say that, that in many ways it's the spiritual growth that really seems to make the difference, uh, in terms of, uh, the effectiveness of clinicians. That it's an element that is very important. There's a resonance, there's entrainment, there's a therapeutic relationship. And what we've pretty much found over the years is that without that therapeutic relationship, you're going to have a hard time with your patient because they're not going to be very compliant. They'll tell you they'll do something, and half the time they won't. But when you have that relationship, they'll just about always take the body. And that's all I'm looking for now. So the kind of the bottom line in all of this, I guess, is that that we as, as people, you know, have a lot of choices and a lot of things we can do uh, that, uh, that can help us be better in terms of, uh, you know, our own life and better in terms of, 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 of our clinical ability. I think, it, it, to me, uh, it's, it's a package. You've, you've got to know, uh, you know, the different skills of your trade. And, but if you can establish that therapeutic relationship then the rest of it becomes pretty easy because the relationship is healing. And now when you prescribe a medication or a behavioral uh, intervention, you've got someone who more than likely would at least give it a try. And so the, I guess in all of this, uh, what I would say is that this whole process of recovery or process of spiritual growth is a, just an awesome thing, you know. It, it, it's life-changing. And it changes the people around you. I mean, what they were uh, looking at, and there's a couple more pieces of research here, but I'm going to get the hook in a moment. So if you care to, you can, you can read those. But it, probably the one that's most interesting is uh, take a bunch of pain patients, tell them that you don't have an active ingredient but only a placebo and it's inert, but tell them that sometimes it helps people and 40% of them will get better. Pretty powerful. I always say to every patient I see, I say, I look them in the eyes and I say, you know, I've seen many people like you, and just about all of them have gotten better, and I expect you to get better too. Expectation, so important. Um, there's actually a little case in there where they looking at a camprosate and naltrexone and placebo. There, 2003 were the initial studies, then several in 2006. But what they found was that, uh, uh, all of the placebo, uh, campersate, and naltrexone results were the same. Now, what they did in, in 2006 
was they replicated it, and then they went out and talked to the patients and asked them, did they think they were getting a real pill or a placebo? The ones that thought they were getting the real pill got better. The ones that didn't, didn't. And so when everything fails, I guess, we can always turn to, you know, jump through this a little bit, old Dr. Larry's empty bottle. Uh, it can probably be pretty effective sometimes. But, you know, I think that uh, as, as professionals, if we, can, if we can establish a relationship, you know, and we're truly working on ourselves, then, then we add a lot to what's going on. And I thank all of you for what you've done and, you know, the time you put in on your own growth and to become the clinicians you are. And I thank you for that. Um, I know you're helping a lot of people, and that's what it's all about. And I, I just want to thank you all for allowing me to be here today. It's my first time at this conference, so it's been a lot of fun for me, and it's great to see some old friends. So uh, thank you very much. I enjoyed my time.